uh, I think uh, last week we were working on a name for our Sunday night, and I came up with the Primitive Bible Hour, so that was one idea, the primitive that we were simplifying things, but I think, Pastor Steve, you had a better one, do you remember what you want? Yes, what was it going to be called? Simply scriptures, uh, and that's what we're doing. So we'll, we'll go. We'll use that one. That way, we don't have to divide men and women, and you know, and our gals have have coverings and all that kind of stuff. We don't want to go there. Uh, so, simply scriptures. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and take those and turn to Joshua chapter eight, or no, just Joshua chapter two. I don't know why I said eight. We're going to handle that in our final week. We're going to be looking at a variety of chapters in the book of Joshua um, tonight. We'll basically be covering 2, 3, 4, and 5. I know that's always a little fearful when you hear that, uh, but we're just going to try to drop in and, and develop uh, some truths, uh, some lessons there. Um, if you're a child uh, and you're here and you're taking notes, I'm sorry we didn't have our note table up. I didn't see it was up. Uh, We'll have to do a little bit better job at making sure that's up each Sunday evening. Was it out there? Oh, good. All right. Well, I was almost throwing poor Brandon under the bus. I didn't even have to do that. So it's out there. So kids, uh, there's going to be three critical pictures you want to uh, perhaps uh, draw and maybe derive some lessons from. But uh, tonight, we're going to learn lessons from Rahab, Rocks, and Rituals. So those are our three points tonight. So if you can draw a picture of Rahab from Joshua chapter 2, you might want to think about what she would have looked like. Uh, she was a Gentile. She was a, a member of the city of Jericho. Um, she became very famous in the nation of Israel. We'll see that. And then you want to draw a picture of a bunch of rocks piled up. And uh, we'll see the significance of those rocks tonight. So Rahab, rocks, and then ritual. I know that's a big word. You might just want to draw some manna falling from heaven. And, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, tonight and the significance of rituals. So Rahab, rocks, and rituals is going to be our fo focus tonight. And um, So as we get started, um, you may or may not know, but our Jewish friends order the lists of the books in the Old Testament differently than we do in our Protestant canon. So think of the Old Testament. Think of how we order the books in our Protestant canon. Uh, the books are the same between how uh, the books the Jewish canon has and our canon. The books are the same, but they're, they're ordered differently. We order them, remember kids, 512-5512. Remember, that's how we order them. Five being the Pentateuch, 12 being the history books, five being the poetry books, 5, 12, 5, 5. Uh, the major prophets, 5, 12, 5, 5. And the last 12 would be the minor prophets. And Major and minor really have to do with the length of the book. We don't want to think that their messages are one is major and the other is minor. So that's how we, we order the Old Testament canon uh, as Protestants. However, our Jewish friends only have three divisions. They have the law, the prophets, and the writings. And what we know to be the historic books, they place among the prophets. And in so doing, they reveal a basic attitude that the historical books are not merely the record of historic events. There's something much more than that. Uh, rather, they view the history of the nation of Israel as prophetic 
especially in the sense of their declarative nature. They, they are about the business of teaching truth. They're, they're declarative. And so they put at least Joshua in what they would call the former prophets, uh, and then they have the, the, the latter prophets. But Joshua finds itself there as a, as a prophetic declaration of truth. Um, we, we would appreciate that, uh, given the truths of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So we would we appreciate that attitude. And as church saints, um, we're looking for or that those prophetic, those, that declarative in, information really along the lines first and foremost about salvation history. We're not so interested in necessarily in, in, the, in, the, in the, um, the first and foremost applications. We're really looking more for or those applications should be uh, salvation history. Uh, and then if that's the primary level, then on the in intermediary level, we're certainly going to look at the nation of Israel. We're going to try to learn some lessons fundamentally about the character of God on how he deals with his theocratic citizenry, if you could put it that way, that those who are under uh, his rulership, his direct rulership as the theocratic head, the nation of Israel. Uh, the real point of continuity between the nation of Israel and the church is the character of God. Uh, we, we bank on the truth that God doesn't change, right? Uh, he is immutable in that sense. So, so when we have, when we observe the character of God and we observe what he's doing and what he's not doing and his interests and his values, we, our minds perk up a little bit and we seek to find some, some reference to that in the New Testament and then we bind those two things together. Uh, and then finally, we, we seek application sort of on the individual level. Uh, the reality is we're dealing with historic narratives and narratives are filled with lots of colorful characters. And there's good guys, there's bad guys, there's foils. And we're learning a lot about ourselves. We're learning a lot about people in general. Uh, we're learning about obedience and disobedience. We're learning the impact of obedience and disobedience. And, uh, and, and we're seeking application along those lines as well. So tonight, with that sort of in the backdrop of our thinking, we want to seek the lessons of Rahab, the lessons of rocks, and the lessons of rituals as expressed here in the opening chapters of the book of Joshua. So tonight we start with Rahab, with Rahab. What I want you to do is, we're, there's a lot of information here about Rahab in chapter 2 and following, but Rahab really uh, begins a long subject um, uh, 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 treatment, given uh, several chapters over to really Rahab and Jericho and the battle of Jericho and Ai and all of its resulting realities. Uh, so we're sort of stepping out here in a, in a long section, uh, but Rahab has some things she wants to teach us and some lessons we want to learn. But instead of reading the whole of the Rahab narrative, we're going to focus really uh, at chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And really, here's where we have the confession of Rahab. Um, we know from our text here that Rahab is a woman of ill repute. She's a, she's a prostitute. Um, and she is a, a woman that, that God sovereignly sweeps 
into salvation history. And he does so in a powerful way. And, and we need to see ourselves in Rahab. Rahab is our grandparent, if you will. All right? Unless we're a, a Jew here this morning, we don't, we don't necessarily find our offspring in Joshua. We find our offspring in Rahab. And the likes of Jericho and the likes of the Canaanites. Uh, these are our Gentile uh, forebearers. And uh, I would argue that we sort of carry with us some of the legacies and the difficulties and the sin natures that were so well developed by those individuals. But Rahab is one. And here we come down in verse number six, uh, uh, verse number eight, I'm sorry. She had brought the men in and she had instructed them. In verse eight, she says, now before, uh, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. This is Rahab. And said to the men, and listen to what she says. She says, I know something now that I didn't know before. And what is that she knew? She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. That's going to be very significant. Before you, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Here it is. For the Lord your God... He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And then she, uh, and then she uh, develops sort of this oath relationship uh, with the spies that obviously as she upholds her part of the bargain, God will certainly uphold his part of the bargain. But as we look at Rahab, we're really looking at lessons from really the highest level of application for you and, us to, for you and I today. Uh, for Gentiles, those of us who love to observe the arc of salvation history. And we find in Rahab a particular personal lesson, a lesson that uh, is, is so precious. Um, the reality is, is that Rahab is a prostitute. She's a prostitute in, a, in, a, in, in Canaan. Now, uh, if we were to look at the laws of warfare in the book of Deuteronomy, Canaan was singled out as a particularly... Uh, 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 it was the, the place of the promised land, uh, but it was singled out because, probably because there were expressions of sin there that were so deep and so uh, egregious to God that he was going to do, handle the Canaanites unlike he handled everybody else. Uh, the laws of war would tell us that when the nation of Israel would go to another country outside of Canaan, they would knock on the door... And they would say, uh, do you, uh, we're about ready to go to war with us. Uh, do you want to go to war with us? Or would you rather just be enslaved to us and, and serve us? And we won't come and kill you. And, uh, and they would have a decision to make. And typically they just said, you know, get out of here. We're going to fight you. Uh, but it was clear from the laws of warfare that the nation of Israel, for those cities outside of Canaan, they were not to touch the women, the children, the cattle. It was just the men they were to destroy 
and then they were to subjugate the people and life was to go on as normal. In Canaan, however, uh, they were all under the ban. Uh, and, and because this was the place that God was going to locate his covenant people, they were to raise cities and raise everybody in them, men, women, children included. And uh, there was no such um, opportunity for those who were living in Canaan. And God is doing this because he's a just God. And he is a God who does all things well and all things right. And um, our Gentile forebearers had all kinds of problems. And uh, we're thankful that God at this point isn't wiping the whole face of the earth clean like he did uh, with Noah and his crew. Uh, we're thankful that he's a little more selective in his judgment. And he's going to establish. But Rahab, Rahab representing the people of God. She's a, she's a prostitute. You know, Gentiles often sugarcoat prostitution a little bit, don't they? They say things, oh, well, she needs to make money to take care of her kids. Yeah, so she's prostituting herself. Or, or it makes a woman feel empowered. You know, I've heard some of those kinds of arguments and uh, the, the Gentile world. And um, some would argue that it's the only way that a woman can get ahead in a male-dominated world, some would say. So she's sort of victimized, and she has to do these things. And so Gentiles, we can sometimes sugarcoat this whole industry, this whole idea, and uh, find our way. And in fact, many of the Canaanite and beyond uh, would, would make prostitution a part of their religious expressions. Uh, there were temple prostitutes, both male and female. And, 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 and so there tends to be a sugarcoating of this. But in the nation of Israel, let me tell you, prostitution had no such sugarcoating. It was very clear. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 29, uh, uh, the problem of prostitution was a problem of the whole land, uh, uh, the Bible tells us there, uh, that when, when prostitutes are allowed or abound in the nation of Israel, uh, God said it was to be outlawed because prostitution profoundly influences the spirit of the land and it leads and uses the word in the King James lewdness lewdness uh, uh, probably a better word that we would be familiar with outrageous kinds of sins when you let prostitution in or you let it sort of uh, 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 active in, in the land and God had completely said absolutely not we're not sugarcoating this this whole industry leads to horrific realities and outrageous sin. In Leviticus chapter 21, verse 7, priests are forbidden to marry prostitutes because the priests are to be called holy, and prostitution was not anything near that. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 17 to 18, uh, the earnings of prostitutes were forbidden. They were called the monies of dogs. And they weren't allowed to be brought into the temple or into the tabernacle in the temple. Uh, obviously, the wisdom literature roundly condemns harlotry uh, in Proverbs 23, 27 and 29, verse 3. So we have this horrific reality. We have this woman who has given her life to the exercise of this horrific industry. So what happens? You know, how in the world does she make her way into the line of Christ? Well, what happens is Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And for those of us Gentiles who have been born again, the same thing happened to Rahab that happened to you. You were called out of your darkness into his marvelous light. 
you who are wretched, you who are living after the dictates of your human depravity. Romans tells us that you are habitual truth suppressors, just like Rahab. You and I together have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and particularly Rahab was brought to her salvation experience by fear. By fear. She had heard how the God, Jehovah God, the God of Israel, had had split the Red Sea, and no doubt she was going to hear about, if she hadn't already, the fact that God had also dried up the Jordan River. These waters were often, um, uh, in, in, in many ways, they were, they were viewed as, as uh, 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 sacred. And um, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit when we look at the rocks. But, but the point being, uh, literally they're... Their gods were, were stripped away from them and they were left bare in the face of this Jehovah God who was doing things that were of great renown, impossible things, things that uh, left the enemies of the nation of Israel with their hearts melted in fear. She, she testifies to that. And she says, now I know that these things are true. These realities that were true of, of the Jehovah God, that were supposed to be being embraced by the nation of Israel, this Gentile woman captured them. You know, I don't know about you, but when I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the bases for coming to Christ was out of sheer fear. I knew at least one thing. I knew I didn't want to split hell wide open. And I knew that, that the realities of my life were such, according to the word of God, that unless I repented of my sin, I was profiling perfectly for the man, the boy, who would split hell wide open. And we had a man come to us one night in an evangelistic campaign, and, and he rehearsed that reality for us for two or three nights straight. And the Lord worked on my heart. And, and I, was, I fearfully came to God because I was standing in the face of judgment. I was standing in the face of justice. I was rightly condemned and I was bidden to put off the construct of wanting to be treated fairly because to be treated fairly would place me squarely in hell forever. No, young man, cry out for mercy. Cry out for grace and find righteousness in another source. And so I appreciate Rahab. You know, Gentiles, by and large, we, we need a good dose of fear. You know, we need the truth about who God is and what he's done. You know, the nation of Israel saw it every day. They saw the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, the Shekinah glory that existed in the middle of their camp encampment. They saw manna, they gathered it. They'd been gathering it for 40 years. It always was there. They had meat provided when they wanted it. They had water from the rocks come forward. They saw the nation, the most powerful nation in the world be brought to her knees. The, the plagues in Egypt, they saw it all. They knew, or they ought to have known, that the God they were dealing with was a very powerful God. The Gentiles, they all they have are idols. You know? 
their idols end up falling flat on their face and they have to lift them up and prop them up. <laughs> you know, it's sort of a pathetic reality. But when you're faced with the power of the God of heaven and the reality of righteousness and holiness and the fact that you don't have any and that the best you are is going to be a little stubby branch grafted into the root, <laughs> it's a great humbling reality. And Rahab got that. Rahab understood that. Rahab was moved by the fear of God to humble herself and to demonstrate a repenting kind of faith. So, so what happened? She confessed faith in Jehovah God, in the God of the covenant. And she entered into a relationship with him for the salvation of her physical life and ultimately her eternal life. And we see here that, that uh, what else happened? Well, we have the witness of the New Testament telling us what else happened with this Rahab. Matthew chapter uh, 1 records the fact that this Rahab is included as one of four women in no one less than Jesus the Messiah's genealogy. That's what else happened. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, includes Rahab among the great examples of faith. Why? Because in a counterintuitive way, in a way that was counter to the spirit of her culture, of her age, she welcomed the spies of Jehovah into her life. When everybody else around her would have killed them and be done with them. A great, great woman of faith. Hebrews chapter 31. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough, James, uh, uh, in his letter, offers Abraham and Rahab. Here Rahab is listed with the likes of the father of faith. The father of the nation of Israel. This is amazing reality. It's an example of the kind of faith that saves. It is a sin-repenting kind of faith that clearly demonstrates itself in actions that are so counterintuitive to the spirit of the world around them. James 2.25 asks, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? In other words, her faith was a works-producing kind of faith. It was a real faith. It was a faith that cost her something, that meant something. It was true saving faith. So that's what else happened, by the way, in Rahab. Yes, an amazing confession in verses 8 and following of chapter 2, but my, an amazing reality. So what are some of the lessons we learned from Rahab tonight? Well, lots of them. We're only going to pick a few. We learn that salvation is by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone. It wasn't for Rahab to clean herself up, to make her presentable before Jehovah God. It simply was hers to fear God to fear the judgment for her sin, to abandon her culture, her commitments <laughs> that were so natural and normal, to abandon those, to put her faith alone in Jehovah God. 
But she also teaches us what that faith is like. We've mentioned it already. Salvation is by faith alone. But salvation is a certain kind. Or salvation requires a certain kind of faith. You know, there are all kinds of faiths out there. I think James says that the demons believe and tremble. I don't think there's any demons that are going to go to heaven, even though the word of God witnesses they believe. But they are not exercising a faith, the kind of faith that saves. The kind of faith that saves was exercised by Rahab. And it was the kind of faith that exercises itself in very counter ways to the spirit in which it's found. And it's going to do things God's way and commit oneself to God's plan rather than the plan of the world around us. So faith alone, the kind of faith. Uh, we learn that salvation is free. It's free to all. It's free to the likes of us. It's free to the Gentiles. It's free to the prostitutes. It's free to the drunkards. It's free to the adulterers. It's free to the immoral. It's free to the moral. It's free to the religious. It's free. It's free. Whosoever will may come. But they come on God's terms. They come with a kind of faith that saves. Rahab teaches us that. A sin-repenting kind of faith that clearly demonstrates itself in actions. That's what Rahab teaches us. So in the book of Joshua, we have lots of lessons that Rahab can teach us. We've mentioned a few tonight. The second thing we have is lessons from rocks. Lessons from rocks. And let's take a few pages over and go to Joshua chapter 4. In Joshua chapter 3, we have uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, sort of in, in a counterintuitive way, the spies come back from their time with Rahab. And unlike the 12, remember the old generation, the 10 that gave such an unfaith-filled report, all the things that God said were true were true. The, 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 the land certainly did flow with milk and honey. Uh, uh, the produce there was beyond believable. It was amazing. However, there were giants in the land. These two spies came back and said, let's go get them. This is a fresh new generation. They're ready now. They had, they had spent 40 years in the wilderness, and they were frankly done <laughs> with that. And, and they were going to move on. So we have really the, the, the testimony of now Israel uh, as a nation. Uh, they, she gets up, and, and there's a task before her. And uh, she's going to have to cross the Jordan River. And uh, in that crossing, now there's all kinds of important details. Um, we want to understand this crossing of the Jordan as, as uh, given to us in chapter 3 as just a massive thing. This crossing is not sort of like happening in a simple half an hour of time. Just the men who are ready for battle is over 40,000. Moses has already talked about the nation of Israel being in, 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 in the numbers of 600,000. Unless you think, well, we're leaving uh, the, the, some of the Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh, and there's another tribe we're going to leave on the east side of the Jordan. Well, the men who were of, of fighting age in those tribes had to come along. So this was a massive, massive undertaking. And we're also told uh, that um, in, in 
in chapter 3 that, that the Jordan is at flood stages. Uh, the, the, the river is swollen in such a way that, that makes it the, the crossing of it particularly treacherous. Uh, and, and at this point, we, we seek lessons from the rocks. The rocks, these rocks are, are the rocks that God's going to command uh, one from every one of the tribe of Israel while the Jordan is dried up. They're literally going to take rocks from under where the priests are standing as they went into the river first with the Ark of the Covenant and they stood there uh, the whole time while the nation was crossing over and uh, uh, men from each tribe, one person was to take a rock from where the priests were standing and those rocks then were used to build a memorial uh, in Gilgal, uh, the place where they would stay that evening. And it was to serve a very important, important lesson. So at this level, we're on that intermediate level. We're looking at the nation of Israel. Uh, and really what we want to see is the power of God's amazing uh, sovereignty. God's amazing sovereignty. If Rahab illustrated God's amazing love, uh, the rocks and the crossing of Jordan by the nation of Israel and the powerful work of God demonstrates his sovereignty. If you know anything about, uh, has anybody traveled to the nation of Israel? No? One, good. Harry, Lynn. Um, if you do your little study, so the Jordan River, it actually starts north of the Sea of Galilee, and I think it's Mount, is it Hermon, I think? And Mount Hermon is a snow-capped mountain, I believe. And so as those waters melt, and of course it's a mountain, the rains, all that water trickles down and it begins, the Jordan River dumps into the Sea of Galilee at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and then it empties out at the south side of the Sea of Galilee and then trickles all the way down to the Dead Sea. So it's a large river, but it's not, you know, it's not what we would argue a massive river by any stretch. Um, uh, uh, but but it, there are times when it's a, a particularly a formidable barrier um, and, and at this time, the, it, the, uh, the, the Jordan in places swelled to being over a mile wide, uh, 12 to 15 feet deep. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very formidable crossing. And in fact, uh, uh, historians tell us that the Canaanites in particular would often find themselves to be very content and cozy at this time of the year because they felt like they were protected from any nations that would invade them from uh, the west and cross over the Jordan and attack them. Um, so they felt that they were safe, they were sound. Um, we know that Gentiles often look at rivers as being sacred. Uh, we know that in India, the Ganges is a sacred river. Uh, it has all kinds of import for them. Uh, we know the nation of Israel, uh, the Nile, they literally worship the Nile and what it provides for them. And the Canaanites were no different. They had the Jordan. And the Jordan was in, in full spring swell. Uh, they had nothing to be worried about. They weren't concerned at all. Uh, so the Canaanites felt very protected by the flood waters, uh, which to them showed them Baal's power to save them, particularly in this instance from the Israelite invasion. Historians tell us this was probably the reality. It's interesting to note that Israel never worshipped the Jordan River, and particularly at this point in time, they saw it simply as a barrier to overcome in order to get to the land that God had promised them. 
We know that these rocks were taken from the middle of the Jordan in place. If you have your Bible, chapter 4, uh, verses 2 through 7, uh, there God instructs uh, Joshua. He, he's, God's telling Joshua what to tell the nation. Take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua did that. Uh, in verse 6, Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask, Later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you will say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is simply the symbolic presence of God. Uh, the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. In verse 21, here the, the deed is done. <clears throat> or Joshua's reporting this now to the nation. He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel, cross this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, not Baal, not any contrived ideas of comfort. When God is on the move, nothing stops him. Nothing. So what are the lessons here? Uh, well, the lessons are given to us here. Number one, uh, this was to be a sign. This whole, this whole uh, amazing national event of getting 600,000 people across the Jordan on dry ground was to be a sign. It's to be a sign. It, it, was, it was a provocative thing. It was something that was to provoke. And, and in order for it to have generational uh, uh, impact, rocks were, were gathered out of the middle of the Jordan River, the dry Jordan, the season where it was swelled to its greatest and those rocks were stacked up. It was to be provocative. It was to be provocative particularly for children. You know, adults lose their curiosity. And therefore, adults often <clears throat> fail to, to, to embrace the generational <clears throat> interest that the God of heaven has in transferring truth from one generation to the next. We kind of get lost in that, or we lose that. Uh, but children... When they see things that don't quite belong, they, they're curious enough to ask, well, what's that all about? What's that there for, Dad? Father, what's going on? So it's provocative. It's provocative particularly for children. And the lesson that, that Joshua or, or these rocks teach is that Baal does not protect Canaan. It did not. He did not protect Canaan. There's only one God and one God only and kids, he fights for you if you're on his side. <clears throat> Israel crossed over Jordan on dry ground. There was no protection to be had. All would submit itself to the sovereign power of Jehovah God. Nothing is safe from him when he is on the move. Jehovah God dried up the waters of the Jordan so you can continue to move forward, young people. That's what essentially the lesson is. 
He's sovereign over all creation. Jehovah God dried up the waters of the Red Sea for the old generation. But they died in the wilderness because they refused to keep moving forward. But God's doing this for you, young generation. Splitting the waters of the Jordan. And don't forget, you've got to keep moving forward. Don't be like that other generation who saw probably even a more massive display of God's power. And they died wandering in the wilderness because they would not go in. Don't do that, kids. Don't do that. All the peoples of the earth, then we're told, may know uh, that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And this was going to, we know that this, it already had an impact on Rahab. It would continue to have an impact. Um, we're going to see it here in chapter 5. Um, and so that all the peoples may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And then so that you, you kids, you would fear the Lord. You would fear the Lord as you witness this amazing power, or at least we tell you about this amazing power that God displayed that day. He's sovereign over creation. Sovereign over creation. You know, God has not changed. And the truth of the matter is the Baals still abound in our Gentile world. You know, Colossians 2.8 reminds us that we're to see to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. The salient question, really, for the kids who would view the memorial... The, 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 the reality is we meditate upon the old generation that, yeah, came through the Red Sea but died in the wilderness. Uh, the real question is, who do you fear more? That's the question. Who do you fear more? Who or what are you afraid of more than God? There ought to be absolutely nothing, or at least that ought to be the progress of saving faith in your life. What ideas shared by our Gentile friends that we fear upsetting? Some that have endeared themselves to us. Ideas that can inhibit us from moving forward and taking the ground in our life Jesus wants us to take. How about the idea that my parents have left an indelible mark on my soul? You know what indelible means? Making marks that cannot be removed. You fear that idea, or you fear what God says? How about the idea, well, I'm broken, I'm helpless, no one understands, I'm a victim, the problem is all the oppressors in the world. What about the sacred nature of my feelings? Those are sacred. This is how I feel. How about the roles of men and women in society, the roles of men and women in our church? Roles of men and women in a godly home. All kinds of ideas our Gentile friends have. Many of these rivers, we are told by our fellow Gentile friends and culture, they're uncrossable. And in fact, holding them close brings about a sense of self-security, rationality, and safety. And they also give you cherished permissions that others may not have. 
a new generation of believers do not worship these ideas. They will not. They're not going to walk around in the wilderness of those ideas and die. They're not going to do it. Young people, listen to me. Don't cherish those ideas. Cross those rivers. Get over them and get into the promised land where God has called you to be. Beat your past because God will enable you to do it. Throw off <laughs> the sacred nature of your feelings and get busy about obedience to the word of God. And he'll show you where the promised land is. He knows. He knows. Cross those obstacles. Cross those swollen ideas so cherished by our fellow Gentile friends. Refuse to die in the wilderness of those ideas. Get busy about understanding what God's word has to say on these matters. Learn to live in God's loving sovereignty in all these. God is sovereign. And it's not just sort of a platonic sovereignty that's far off and detached. It is a loving sovereignty. Every event in your life, he has ordained it. And he's happy about it. And he's going to move you through the things that are causing chaos in your life. And he's going to show you the path to green pastures and still waters because he's a good shepherd. And he will do that. He, he will do that. <clears throat> Remember, churchmen and women, the individual that enjoys the best mental health is the best theologian. Let me say that again. You want good mental health? Get about being a better theologian. It's that simple. It's that simple. Know God. Know him better than you did yesterday. And look forward to getting to know him more tomorrow. And you'll cross those swollen ideas. And you'll leave them in the rearview mirror. And you'll be like that new generation that went into the promised land. And we're heroic in lots of ways. And then finally, the lesson from ritual. Lesson from ritual. Um, and in and, and, and the ritual here, we really find God's amazing personalized passion for his own. So we're down sort of at that third level where we're finding an interest here and in, in a real personal interest that God had, particularly for the nation of Israel, that is very easy to transpose into the church. It's really the same interest that the Lord Jesus Christ has for us. And we find this... Um, uh, uh, here in chapter 5, uh, we, we have this amazing report. So, so they, they <laughs> this is crazy to me. So, so they all got over the Jordan, right? And they're ready to go, man. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan, right? Their gods had abandoned them, their small gods, little G. And they had nothing left. They knew this was trouble and it was coming. It was a storm, and his name was Jehovah, and he was on the march. He was dressing for battle with his people. 
and there was nothing stopping him. Uh, and, and then, uh, and then the, uh, the, the commander, uh, or, well, we'll just go on to Israel until they had crossed, that they, their hearts had melted, the Gentiles, and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. And then all of a sudden, the, the theocratic king decides to do something. He says, at that time, <laughs> the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraoloth. Um, and then it tells us why Joshua circumcised them all. And, um, and we'll get to the reason here. But, but it's really, um, you know, one of the peculiar things about being a child of God is living under the divine fact that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He just does. If you've been around seasoned Christians for any length of time, you'll often testify, uh, you often hear them testify that their plans are simply opportunities for God to assert his sovereignty. You ever hold an older, older Christian tell you that? So yeah, go ahead and make your plans, but hold on to them very loosely. Around here, you, might, you may hear us say, we plan, but God directs, right? Well, these are, this is one of those classic, you know, the nation of Israel was planning, but God directs. And it was going to be painful. And uh, it, it just stops the army literally in their tracks. This is not a figurative stopping in your tracks. Uh, and these are not little babies that are being circumcised. These are full-grown men. <laughs> it's, it's going to hurt. And it's going to paralyze the nation of Israel in their forward movement. From Joshua's standpoint, things were moving along just swimmingly. This new generation of Israelites were proving themselves to be the real deal, unlike the apostate old generation. Then all of a sudden, 5, 1, and 2, King Jehovah decides to cripple the men of Israel, including all of her fighting men. And by the way, they're on the wrong side of the Jordan from a tactical standpoint. They are in enemy territory. They're not on the west, the east side of the Jordan. Uh, this is rough. Um, but Joshua rests in the truth of verse number one and two, that, that God had gone ahead, and there was no hurry here, that the, the spirit of the enemy was crushed and consumed, and he obeys. Um, this, this ritual renewal we have here, um, this is the highest level of salvation history. And we get five as we read why. Um, in verse number seven, the children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised. This is a second generation, for they were uncircumcised because they had not, because they had not circumcised them along the way in their wilderness wanderings. Now, when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. How long that takes? Well, you can only imagine. And the Lord said to Joshua, and here's the key, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. That's the key. That's what's at issue. That's what's important. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day, where God rolled back the reproach of Egypt. Um, you know, God longs for holiness in his people. Worshippers are, are not really worshipers until their affections are aligned with the affections of the most holy. We're given the symbolic significance of this ritual renewal. And it was, today I have rolled away the shame of Egypt from you. This literally was a cutting away of the shame of Egypt. A cutting away of the shame of Egypt. Uh, Egypt was <clears throat> the reality of Israel's old life. 
Israel, Egypt represented bondage, slavery, embarrassment, no national identity. They were not a people. They were being jerked around. It was shameful. They were embracing the, the habits and the postures of, of a pagan people. And they were, they were experiencing in their rank and file the, the embarrassment and the shame of those choices and habits. It was awful. It was awful. So what's the application? Well, I think you can imagine the application. We would argue that for us, Jesus is equally interested in holiness. Uh, that Jesus cut away the power of the world system, ruled by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And he did that at the cross. He cut it away. That old life was a shameful one. Can you agree with me? Your old life outside of Christ was a shameful one. That life was a life of the compounding of choices that created habits that were shameful and were leading in all the wrong directions. All the wrong directions. The Lord Jesus Christ forgives us once and for all and gives us his perfect righteousness. It's cut away in a moment. But then he embarks upon a process of definitively cutting away those old shameful choices and habits in the practices of life, conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. So the event of being born again yields a definitive reality in your life. You are a new creation in Christ. You are now a slave of righteousness. You are no longer a slave of your own sin. And you are about the business of, of progressively losing the shame of Egypt, losing the shame of that old way of life and those old choices, that self-centered uh, uh, foundation for living life. He practically moves our lives away from the decisions that rendered shame into decisions informed by the authority of the word of God. Those decisions lean to green pastures and still waters. And it's there the God of heaven wants you to lie down and find rest for your soul. So our old manner of life is the greatest threat to holiness and the richest source of shame, that old sin nature. Well, that's the way I've always done it. Folks, if that's ringing in your heart or your mind, that is the richest source of shame. Marriages, well, we just can't get along. Oh, that's how we've always been. Or all, well, hey, if the Lord Jesus Christ is putting it on your heart to move past that, spend the rest of your life fighting that and pursuing it, and die and then hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You may not have been successful, but you died fighting. You died fighting. You died fighting. And that's what the Lord wants you to do. Egypt has been cut away by the amazing power of the cross of Christ. May we understand that the influence of Egypt in our lives will continue to be the object of the double-edged, sharp sword of the word of God as it penetrates, dividing even the soul and the marrow. And as a discerner, it's going to go all the way down to the intents. You know, how often, oh, well, I, I didn't intend to do that or lie. Or, well, the, whole, the, the word of God's <clears throat> working down there as well. So we have the ritual of circumcision renewed. We have the ritual of collecting manna ceasing here as we read on in this text. 
they're no longer going to be receiving manna from heaven. It was now theirs to take up the resources of the promised land. And I would argue that in terms of application, God moves us from milk to meat. God wants you to be a self-feeder. We have a wonderful disciple-making opportunity here where people come alongside of you and give you the opportunity to, to, to learn the word of God. But he wants you to continue to, to, to grow to a point where you can study it on your own and understand it and apply it in a faithful way and, and know it well enough that you can share it with somebody else. So we have this perpetual reality. So you'll find in your Christian life, when you're a baby Christian, things may come easy and it might feel like man is being handed to you from heaven. But at some point in time, you're going to hit a little glass ceiling. And if you're truly born again, you want to cross that swollen river and get after the study of the Word of God. You know, you can read a commentary just like anybody else. You can take the Simply Blessed course and learn inductive Bible study that will take you deeper into the Word of God and practically understand it. So maybe tonight you feel like manna from heaven has sort of stopped falling. And you keep you open up your Bible and it kind of sounds like it's the same thing over and over and over again. Well, what I encourage I would encourage you to, to start picking up the resources of the promised land. There's a lots lots of good ones out there in this day and age in which we live. So tonight, <clears throat> the lessons of Rahab, the lessons of rocks, and the lessons of ritual. May God help us as we seek to apply them to our lives to embrace these pictures that are worth a thousand words. And there's a lot more there for those of you who are willing to go study and understand them. May God give us grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your tender love and mercy. We thank you for simply scripture. We pray that tonight, as we've looked at Rahab, we delight in the joy of, 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 of a salvation that's free, that's procured by faith alone. But we learn from Rahab that it's not just any kind of faith. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a repenting kind of faith. It's a faith that, that demonstrates itself in, in the realities of making different and new choices. Help us with that. We thank you for rocks, for memorials that we ought to set up, with um, times when we, we, we are, are, are moving past the swollen waters, the swollen ideas of our life that so often... Uh, 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 keep us bound. Lord, help us to be better at viewing the reality of our life through the lens of the word of God and putting periods where God's word puts periods and, and taking up new courses of thought and to be better uh, students of God's word in that sense. And then these rituals, Lord, help us to understand you're about the business of moving us away from the shame of our old life. And that's not just something you do at the moment of, of when we're born again, but that's really the concern of the rest of our existence. You're, you're, you're pressing us to Christ-likeness, regardless of how old in the faith we are. There are more issues of shame that have to be dealt with. So Lord, keep doing that. Keep applying yourself to that and help us to joyfully long for that and, and desire it. And, and Lord, it comes at hard times. We get it. It's often surprising, <laughs> just like it was in the text. And and then we thank you, Lord, for the manna that falls from heaven and the great provisions. But, Lord, we understand that, that we've got to uh, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's uh, what Paul reminds us in Philippians. So help us to, 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 to get up and do that, 
to do our part, to be disciplined unto godly living. We thank you for all these good things. We love you. Take us home safely now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed. The Lord bless.